Hi there, debated listeners, it's Will here. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about a podcast I'm really enjoying at the moment. We're currently facing one of the most challenging moments in human history. Our governments are under increasing pressure to bring about the results people expect, while remaining trusted and relevant. And yet, the systems, structures and processes of government today are often not set up to respond to the complex challenges we face as a society. Reimagining Government is a new podcast from the Centre for Public Impact and Apolitical that explores radical new approaches to addressing the most pressing issues of our time. By speaking with public servants and politicians at the heart of government worldwide, it shines a light on how to reimagine government so that it works for everyone. From the climate crisis to equitable healthcare provision and how to rebuild trust with marginalised communities, listen to the Reimagining Government podcast to explore today's most urgent global issues. Don't miss out. Find and follow Reimagining Government on your favourite podcast streaming platforms. I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. I want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Loft, author of Last Trains, Dr. Beeching and the Death of Rural England. Welcome to the podcast, Charles. Thank you, Will. Great to have you on. Now, um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, uh, what prompted you to write Last Trains? That's a good question. Well, I, I, it actually um, was the subject of my PhD about uh, God, 20, 20 odd years ago. Uh, I studied at, at Peter Hennessy, and it was a very long time ago. And uh, the PhD, you know, obviously the PhD was quite a sort of academic uh, study of, of what liberal service had done. And, but I felt that um, I was constantly running into people who would give me a brief lecture on my own subject when I mentioned Dr. Peaching. And if you say uh, I work on transport pe- policy, people sort of sleep. But it, once you mention Dr. Peaching, it tends to be men of a certain age <laughs> that, that they will give you a little lecture about it. Uh, and, and I thought it would be yeah, good good to write a book that was hopefully accessible to people with a, an interest in uh, railways and, and, and an interest in you know why their local line is closed. And I think it's, um, I mean, I think there are two elements that make it a, a fascinating story beyond people who are just interested in how policy. One is that it's a story of how local communities tried to resist government policy and how. You know, at first they were quite successful, and then the government changed the rules, and then, uh, and then ultimately, you know, what what would was entirely prevented by that uh, by politician. Um, so, so it's quite an interesting story there, and it's also an interesting story because in in the nineties when I first started looking at this, there were people who sort of saw it all in terms of a conspiracy by the road lobby and the oil companies to do down the railways. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't. It, uh, it, it, it wasn't the conspiracy. It, whatever you think of policy, it was genuine attempt to predict and accommodate the transport needs of the future. Um, and we look back and say, "Good." Uh, there's a lot of things we can learn from that. And I think it's. I, I, I sort of come into taking an interest in politics from S. 
you know, a broadly radical background, it was easy to get into a, a mindset seeing government as being entirely a, a sort of conspiracy against the people, I guess. <laughs> and I think it's important to understand um, that, that that isn't, you're not saying there's never anything underhand or corrupt, certainly, but, but it's important to understand that even people working diligently with the best of intentions end up doing things that, well, what, what, why has it gone that way? Mm-hmm. And um, and that actually policy making is um, a really complex. Yeah, no, uh, uh, absolutely. And one of the, the the interesting things in that, in terms of policy making, is um, you open the book by recounting an incident in which um, Willie Whitelaw is accosted by a farmer who says that because of the railway cuts, he wouldn't know what time to go home for his tea. Uh, to which he was advised to buy himself. A watch, and I think that this anecdote reveals a, a greater truth about how the changes to the railways affected ordinary people's lives. And um, do you think that the the scale of the impact, how much it would change people's lives, was perhaps underestimated by the government at the time? Yes, I think broadly speaking, yes, I, I do. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they always got it wrong, mm-hmm. but. Um, I mean, it's 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 applicable everywhere, isn't it? That um, if policymakers don't represent the lived experience of the people who are affected by policy, then you know they they tend to underestimate the effect. And you know, if you're someone who can easily afford a car um, and doesn't live in you know Melton Constable in the middle of the north countryside and doesn't have children who have to get ten miles away and rely on the train. It's easy to underestimate um, the impact of that, and in fact, in, the government made genuine efforts to try and uh, establish what hardship was caused by a closure and to alleviate it. It was interesting that that process ultimately boiled down to saying people get work, mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't so. And, and maybe can they get to school? It didn't take account of, in particular. Fact that people who relied on the railway relied on the railway for days out to visit family to do things that are vital to the quality of life but are difficult to quantify economically you know if you, if you suddenly can't get out your life i'm sure it's a lovely place but your life is going to be pretty miserable you can't visit your friends and family i mean the entire great central main line that came to be closed there was one case of a woman in a place called Woodford Holtz, which was an important junction on the line in a tiny village, who relied on the railway to visit her elderly mother, Lester, I think it was. And clearly closing the railway was going to be a disaster for her. She had no way of getting to visit her mother. But, you know, are you going to keep 50 miles of double-track main line open so that one person can visit their mother? No, of course you're not. But exactly where you draw the line, in terms of that impact on quality of life versus cost. That judgment was being made by people who were never going to suffer detriment. And and so question of exactly how you, you take that well, I mean I think that's just that's something that affects policy makers, you know, it's it's an ongoing poster, isn't it? Mm. How do you ensure that the people taking the decisions really appreciate what those decisions mean to people who may have very different lives. Mm-hmm. Um, 
given that in the report, in in the, in the beating report, there is um, a, a, a suggestion that um, more than double the amount of um, line closures that were actually implemented uh, were closed. Um, do you think that had his recommendations been carried out in full, the rail industry would be in in, in a much different state than it is today? And, and do you think it would be in a uh, a, a better place or, or, or a worse place if all of, of the Beaching Report's recommendations had been carried out? Um, oh, uh, as far as the rail industry is concerned, I'm not sure. I mean, it would be much smaller. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. carried out, he, he carried out studies that would have left us with 5,000 miles of, uh, less than 5,000 miles of passenger railway, which is, roughly speaking, would be half the size of this today. They'd probably be Maybe a line to Aberdeen, nothing much. Mm. I was going to Edinburgh for example. So, um, it it would yes, it would be a much smaller industry. I don't think it would actually be very different today because um, there was no size to which you could really reduce the railway that would make it operate without a subsidy, um, and and that's okay because people benefit from the existence of railway services who don't pay to use them. So um, th- th- there's always a case for a subsidy. The, the precise level is, is a matter of political judgment. But um, So I don't think, no, I don't think it would make a huge, a huge difference to the, to the industry because um, those bits of the railway that, have, that are still open because they're possible to clone um, don't make a huge difference to the industry anyway um broadly speaking make an enormous difference to the people who use them but um yeah i don't think it would i don't think the issues for example would still be pretty much the same which is what's the railway for how much are we prepared you i do that yes you could say that one problem on closures as a route to profitability or route losses uh, was that far too little attention investment so in the mid-1970s there were huge controls about whether the railways should back further um whereas cutting 100 million pounds off the railway investment budget wasn't uh wasn't controversial and and so the consequence of that is that you know we haven't electrified lines which obviously should have been electrified years ago and mm. um, as governments tended to cut investment where they couldn't make savings from closures which is a bit of a false choice with everybody's attention on the size of the network rather than you know I mean, I would argue, and I, I think the logical case for this, that the question of should we have electrified the main line through Leicester, Sheffield, you know, that, that's actually going to affect a lot more people than mm-hmm. if we close the from Bridge to Sharon, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to what extent do you think that because of his close association with the report and the 
cuts that were made that Beeching's name has become a, a byword for interfere, interfering bureaucracy uh, that causes more problems than, it's, than it solves. And do you think that that image that is often summed up related to him is a fair assessment of him or his approach to uh, dealing with the, the rail industry? I think for a long time, Beeching's name was exactly that, a, a sort of byword for... Um, and this bureaucracy that it bad things. Um, I think possibly as as the, the the people who who were around at the time sort of you know die off. If I can, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's perhaps you know I'm, I'm not sure how long it, it, his name will continue to resonate quite quite so thoroughly. But um, it it certainly was. I mean, the fact that the BBC could use his name. In the title of a sitcom, thirty years later, <laughs> pr- pretty incredible. I mean, you'd, you'd struggle, I think, to name anybody else who was the leader of a nationalised industry. I'm <laughs> around then, and it, maybe I think it was McGregor was the chair of the coal board during the miners' strike. Then people might remember him, but that's about it. Isn't it? So, um, absolutely, he sort of became a mythical figure, the axe man, and. And, and I do think um, it, it, I mean, it's inevitable, uh, but but it, but it's unfair in as much as in, in two ways, really. First of all, meeting was given a very clear remit, which was to say, what should the railways do? Eliminate the politicians to decide whether or not they should go ahead and do that. I mean, Beeching didn't close any railway lines. He simply identified the ones that close if the railways primary objective was losing money and so the or keeping them or getting rid of them it's a political decision and it's you know if you don't like those decisions blame the politician and hmm. um, i also think that it was unduly negative that the, the, the association beating as um beating reports the outcome of a genuine attempt to get to grips with what are the future trends and how do we provide them? And it's worth bearing in mind that part of the reason why the Beijing Cup went as far as they did was because that nettle hadn't been grasped for a very long time. I mean, before the Second World War, clear to people who were paying attention to the railways, rural branch lanes. Uh, trains that stopped at every station in, in country areas, whether they were passenger or freight, there was no there was no need for those trains. Yes, there were some exceptions, but the, you know, if you've got a bus, that's going to be better for rural traffic. Central mm. villages, it's much much cheaper, much better. You've got um, merchandise freight traffic that needs to be taken. Um, to a shop or from a small factory to a shop, probably going to, if once you've got to put it on a lorry, you might as well take it where it's going on the lorry. Um, and yet nothing was done really uh, for 10 years after the war to deal with the consequences. They will, and, and there were attempts to say, we really ought to close down a lot of branch lines and further traffic bus a nationalised transport mission that was supposed to be, you know, looking at the most efficient way of doing things, that was that was the most obvious thing to do. 
closed branch lines, replace them with buses to build up um, a road fleet with the new sort of industries that you know, the railways are great if you want to take coal to a power station, minerals, that sort of thing, and bulk long distance traffic. They're not so good if you want to take it provision factory. So, so the trends were in favour of road transport. Of course, people mm-hmm. weren't thinking. So, um, in a way, Beijing report was a good thing because, because it, the outcome of people sitting down and saying, right, where are we going and how, what's the best way to get there? And one of the um, interesting things, I think, is to share this with today. So, it, Beijing was looking at 1984. And if transport trends had stopped in 1984, if you ignore carbon emissions, and what we don't know, then actually, you know, not just Beijing, but the accompanying report about roads, the annual report, traffic and down, kind of made sense. You know, we'll build more roads, everybody wants cars, we'll provide for that, and, and you know, railways do long distance. And it kind of makes sense. And the problem was obviously climate change, also, Traffic didn't stop growing in 1984. The more it grew, you, you, you know, you, you've never, in particular, never accommodated cities. So, if we transfer that to now, and I'm not about to get into what we should be doing, but obviously things we might want to think about in terms of planning the future transport related country are, and what does the pandemic mean for computing, for commuting? You know, in 10 years' time, we'll, we'll still be working in the way we were 10 years ago or will we all be working that's pretty big you know it took a lot of money on the elizabeth line let's talk about cross country does it make sense if we're not going to be commuting but it's certainly a question to think about and and then there's the question of well what what does what does climate change mean for big transport are you know do, do we want to keep moving by road or, or is there more of a role for rail and you know what, what? What about long distance stuff? If, do we want a high speed rail network which we're in the process of building, or is demand going to be quite low for that? Now, I, I, I'm not. I have no idea what the answer to those questions are. But I think just by posing, it's pretty clear that yeah, if we ask those questions, then build a transport system on the basis of what we think the answers are. Wouldn't be entirely surprising people in thirty years. <laughs> they around and said, "God, well, you know, that, you've got all that wrong." It's really hard to predict, and and obviously at the time, beaching and policymakers went beaching. You know, we're trying to predict the future. They did a they did a really good job, I think, predicting what the demands would be in twenty years' time. But um, you know, what they didn't foresee was that we would then need to take account of the need to say and it and the fact that you cannot ultimately accommodate constant growth in road absolutely and i, I think one of the, the things that is, is interesting both from the book and and from the discussion is the uh, way in which road travel has been interpreted by by different um politicians and the expansion of it versus um, public transport. Do you think that this is always going to be a, a, a somewhat uh, contentious issue going 
you know, back to the time of the beaching forward and, and, and towards today, this seeming either or approach that some people have to either focusing uh, on, you know, people owning individual cars and maybe it's better to change the type of car that people um, own from a, a diesel or a petrol car to a, an electric car and it's better to focus on that or the alternative argument that some people make it's better to invest more in uh, public transport in, in trains in buses that kind of thing and just take cars off the the road um, re- regardless of um, what kind of uh, technology they use um to 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 go do, do you think that that's going to be a, a a continual argument that we're going to see go on and on and on this road versus versus train uh, or, or other forms of public transport argument and that it's one that you can see really um stemming from the time of beaching and, and, and a little bit beforehand yes i mean I, I think uh i hope that um we can get away from a sort of polarized you know uh stopping stopping motorists or being on the side of motorists argument it ultimately there is no getting away from the fact that we're going to have you know we need make some pretty radical changes in the next few years or we're going to destroy the planet that's you know that, that's and um at the same time Focusing on individual motorists how to blame for that—it's ridiculous. Because, you know, people are driving because they they don't care. Others are driving, and because you know there isn't any other way they can. You know, our, our, our world is dis- well, at least in in the West, our world is designed around the assumption of access to a car. So, we need to collectively address what of the change we want to see and how are we going to get. And and that's not going to happen. Boils down to a, you know, polarized bitter brow. I I think it needs to be more sophisticated than that. And I think it does. It, it, you know, in the 1950s, when the Treasury first started waking up the need to consider future transport of nature, they did rather tend to look at what's the total demand. Uh, you know, how can we divide this between road and rail? Which is I mean, it, it's better than not thinking about it at all, which is what they were doing before. But it's not—it's not the most sophisticated, is it? Um, so I think, you know, there's—it's a debate that needs to continue. But I think it's a debate that needs to be more sophisticated than uh, just pro and anti road. Um, you know, for uh, I guess people who were around in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, the motor car was a fantastic symbol of individual freedom. There's all—I mean, I didn't drive until I was forty. When I learned to drive, got a car. There were definitely loads of things I could do that I, I couldn't have done, and 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 that's very attractive. And of course, it's also not great, you know, from an environmental point of view. How do we? I, I guess if if the policy objective is to um, reduce traffic, and I think. That's probably at some point it's the point where you have to, you have to do that. Even if you can, everybody can have a car that that is carbon neutral. Even if you get to that point, um, you've got a position where not everybody can drive into the centre of 
London or wherever at once. So you've got to do something else, haven't you? And, yeah. And I think we, yeah, we do need to be um, thinking about what, what, what. It comes down to the same questions that they were asking in the 1960s. You know, what, what is the transport system there for? How much we pay to achieve what we which is why I sort of mention how we work is a pretty bit of that. For the sake of argument, if everybody who could worked at home would obviously transform what we need our public transport system to do and what we need our road transport system to do. I'm, I'm not suggesting that the government should then force everybody to work at home. I'm just saying, you know, the, the, the answer to the sort of, well, how, how do we want to work? In, uh, that, that's, that's a key question. Until we've answered that, I'll really say, well, what, what sort of computing? And I was at a really interesting uh, seminar a few years ago where there was a guy talking about how in the future he, he felt that as self as um, driving car and possibly nobody would own them um, because better you'd just ring up a tax when you need a car. It would turn up, you'd get in it, it would take you where you go. Then it would go out and do another job. And you wouldn't parking wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't need to park it. Um, AI cars driving around Rory. And it and it, it sounded like a really good system. But what, what I couldn't work out was how you how would you get to that system? Because people like to have their own car. Um, so are you gonna price them out of the market? Are you going to fund them? Are you going to just win them over with, with the need to do something different. And um, I have no idea what the answer to that is, by, by the way. But I think uh, the, the debate about what do we want from trans, not just private, and what, what are the costs involved and what are we prepared to pay, needs to be much more dispassionate, much less passionate, uh, rouse about parking or your duty it's, it's difficult to see how policymakers kind of get it out of that because those issues are so uh, or can be contentious um yeah uh, sorry at the end of that uh, comment isn't isn't an answer no 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 but i mean it's still a, a very interesting um point of view particularly um, in uh, light of my my next question, which is in in the book, you mentioned that there's often a nostalgia um, associated around um, rail transport, and, and there's both at, at the time and, and something that you um, see as well today. Do you think that that nostalgia has, in some instances, been at the detriment um, to the um, the rail industry because it's kind of forced um in, in so many people's minds the railways into this kind of um amber um uh, amber holding cell that they're stuck in this vision of the sort of the old um steam-powered uh locomotives and so they automatically think of rail transport as something that's a bit old-fashioned and not necessarily something that they should be using or or, or, or is for that Yes, I think, but I think there are a number of elements to to it, and, and certainly, I in the book I, I tried to make a point that, and one of the reasons I think Dr. Beeching became so infamous 
was that um, people have a in England, particularly pe people have a, a, a vision of you know what do you think of when, when you think of England, and, and people tend to think of a sort of you know village that you see in, in films. Hel Helena Bonham Carter is probably there in the Rowan Atkinson's Vicar, something something like that, and, and and a steam train is a key part of that. And, and one of the reasons that I think we we think of that is um, partly because those you know it is quite an attractive vision in, in a lot of ways but but because when we see films about England and um, that's what we see that's 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 when they tend to be set and and filmmakers will almost always use a steam drain when they can because it because it looks great so it, it, it sort of feeds itself so um Dr Beeching is seen as um you know the the man who who stabbed rural England in the back if you like and, and facilitated the replacement of um the, the the traditional English village with the you know the the mini market at the roundabout and the you know, all, 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 all the things that we we maybe don't like about how the English countryside has changed in the last 50 years and and, and this was something you know right from the very start uh the the, the steam branch line was seen at, I'd say the start the start of the closure process but by the end of the Second World War, the steam branch line was seen as something integral to the countryside. And there's a film from 1952, I think it is, the Ditfield Thunderbolt, about a village that saves its railway from the soulless ministry and to close it. And the squire makes this great speech about if you open our village up to lorries and buses, what will it be like in 10 years' time? All the houses will have numbers instead of names. There'll be traffic lights and zebra crossings. And he sort of paints a picture of a toxic modernity that is invading his traditional village. Of course, he's got a car. <laughs> he's the only person in the village who's actually got a car. Uh, but so so right from the start, and I mean, John Betjeman's poetry was very tied up in the ideas of the railways as being fundamental to, to the British countryside. Of course, Completely different from when they were built, and and people didn't want railways going through the countryside because they thought they spoiled the view. So, um, yeah. So I think uh, there is definitely a cultural element that uh, in the, the English sort of seeing uh, both the the real England as being essentially rural, uh, village based, and steam trains are part of that, um, and. Also, that um, the English tend to see um, life as being, you know, that, that, that England has declined. Um, that, you know, the whole academic literature about uh, the, the idea, certainly uh, in the late 20th century, that, that the English tended to think England had declined, despite the fact that standards of living had risen. And, you know, there were all the, the sort of empirical measures uh, that, um, People were better off than they had been. Yet uh, there was a feeling that um, modern England how inferior to old England, and that um, yeah, beating was part of in the same way that you know people to modern state being you know bad thing when they were built. They were huge improvements on the stuff they replaced. So you know. Um, it sort of got tied up in that, that whole decline is feeling.
I think it's I think it's a little bit different than in 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 Scotland, where um, the whole debate about um, Scottish Rail tied up with the Scottish feeling that um, London's dictating to Scotland that it, it's we should cut. Pretty much true. <laughs> Scottish region was um, notorious for not closing railways, but you know the for the fairly obvious reason that in Scotland you had really long railway lines that were never going to stop losing money. But, you know, if you close the railway line from Inverness to Wick, there's a, in that, you need that railway line, particularly the years ago. If you needed that railway line, you really needed that railway line. So, um, you know, the, the whole debate is very different. We're talking about, you know, there were several lines which were really, really long lots of money and, and and it wasn't feasible to really isn't absolutely um we're coming towards uh the end of the podcast charles thank you for taking the time to speak to me but i have one final question to you for anybody who has uh, either read the book or, or is going to read the book what one thing would you most like them to take away from reading it whether it's a particular fact or, or, or an overall impression about um, the Beeching Report and, and, and the changes to the, the railways uh, during that period? Oh, I think absolutely the overwhelming thing I would want them to take away from it is that when I started as a young student studying this, oh dear, it's depressing to take over 30 years ago, um, I, I came to it having read a book called The Railway Conspiracy, which sort of painted this all as uh, a deliberate attempt to sabotage the railways in order to boost. And um, what I got out of my initial research was a better understanding of how policy is made and, and you know, the lobbying of um, ruthless corporations is, is part of that, certainly. But um, I, I think that the whole closure controversy throughout the 50s was um, a fight between people trying to save local services and people who were genuinely trying to you know, make the country work. And the nature of that debate was generally counterproductive. Um, the objectives to early closures could make the government and the railways look bad, but they couldn't change their opinion. Um, and so ultimately they lost, but, um, people trying to run it from a national point of view, maybe lacked, um, the worm's eye view that they needed to have to understand exactly what the point of what they were doing was. So, so I think what I hope people will take it is that it would be great if contentious policy could be frankly discussed and sparably made and better understood, which I, I guess is motherhood and apple pie, but it seems to be a long way away by political debate works. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you uh, once again uh, for coming on uh, the podcast, Charles. If people want to buy a copy of the book or, or find out uh, more about you, uh, where should they go to, to get a copy of the book or, or to find out more about uh you? It's a, the, the book is called um, Last Train, Stop the Beaching and the Death of Rural England, and it's published by Bikeback, so um, you can, it is available 
in all good bookshops. I would encourage you to go to a bookshop, buy it, because that way they will pay tax and you'll be supporting a vital local service. But you can get it on that other massive website. <laughs> but, and, uh, by all means, uh, there's a Facebook page, uh, Dr. B. Australian, uh, Death Rural England. By all means. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.